prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, BJ Novak, from the office to a feature film writing and directing career with Vengeance. Hey guys, Josh Horowitz here with another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused, and a new first-time guest to the pod, but someone, of course, you're familiar with, Mr. Taron Edgerton. Taron Edgerton. I'm already promoting next week's podcast. Taron Edgerton is next week. BJ Novak is this week. I'm losing my mind, guys. Um, I just came from the Taron Edgerton event. We taped a live event at the 92nd Street Y. You know what? I'm going to keep this in. This is real. This is real life. Um, no, today's, today's podcast is with BJ Novak. BJ, of course you know from The Office, among other things, but now he has turned his sights on a feature film writing and directing career. He is also starring in the new film Vengeance, which I got a chance to see at its Tribeca Film Festival premiere just a few weeks ago. As soon as I attended, I was like, oh, I got to talk to BJ. This is the perfect excuse. And uh, this conversation more than lived up to it. He's a smart, funny guy that I definitely relate to on many levels. And uh, it was a joy to talk about this new film, which starts off with a really fun, provocative premise. Basically, in a nutshell, BJ plays a uh, podcaster, journalist type, who has been hooking up with a woman who has turned up dead in West Texas. He gets a phone call from the family saying, you are our daughter's boyfriend. That's what she said about you, so you have to come to West Texas. He did, he did not consider himself a close acquaintance. So he finds himself embroiled in this mystery around the, the sadly deceased daughter. Was she murdered? Was it a drug overdose? The mystery will um, unspool before our eyes. Uh, but it's, it's a really twisty, fun, smart um, uh, um, drama, comedy, mystery, a little bit of everything. Features BJ at the center, but also Ashton Kutcher is great in it. Boyd Holbrook is fantastic in it. Great ensemble and a really promising debut for BJ. And it's not a surprise. This guy has the stuff as a writer and creator. So this was a fun excuse to catch up. Um, some other things I do want to mention uh, that I've been up to because it's been a busy time. The Gray Man you probably have heard of by now. This is the new ginormous action movie from the Russo brothers. Um, Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, and a big ensemble. Uh, I got a chance to moderate a big event with the entire cast in LA last week. That was awesome. Um, but for your purposes, I got a chance to sit down with Ryan Gosling, and that was awesome. And it's up right now. That's Lucy. Can you hear Lucy, my dog, snoring behind me? She's not interested. Uh, but you are hopefully in Ryan Gosling. Uh, got a chance to sit down with Ryan, and we had a, a great chat. I'm really proud of it. It's up on MTV News' YouTube page. It is silly. It is fun. It is a great time. I highly recommend it. Check it out. Uh, and check out The Gray Man. It's on Netflix this Friday. If you want a big summer action movie, I dug it. I really did. Big, fun action set pieces. Chris Evans is a great bad guy. Um, and Ryan Gosling does his kind of stoic leading man thing really well. Some nice quips. Some nice supporting cast turns. Um, highly recommended. Other things to mention. I mentioned Taron Edgerton when I flubbed that intro. He's on the podcast next week. Had a great live conversation with him at the 92nd Street Y. You'll be able to check that out on the podcast next week. If you want to watch it, just subscribe to the Happy, Sad, Confused Patreon. Patreon.com slash Happy, Sad, Confused. Virtually every episode of the podcast the last couple years is up there in video form. 
not this one with B.J. Novak. And let me explain why. That's the one sad part of today's conversation. Uh, the Zoom conversation, usually I record these over Zoom like everybody else, failed me. Zoom literally just decided not to record. I hit record. At the end, it just like it, it imploded. My computer basically self-destructed. No recording. Oh my God, the podcast lost forever. But no, BJ Novak again saves the day. He recorded the audio on his end. What does that mean? BJ sounds pretty great. I sound like shit. I apologize. What are you going to do? Here we are. But um, the good news is the podcast exists. It's usable on my end, and BJ sounds great, and that's the most important thing. So I just want to explain to you the audio quality. Other, the one last thing I want to mention, because I know a lot of you guys out there follow all the genre properties and, and are perhaps either attending or going to be paying attention to San Diego Comic-Con, uh, I'll be there. So if you see me out there in the wild, of course say hello. Um, if you don't see me out there, don't worry. All of my interviews, and there are going to be a ton of them, will be up on MTV News and Comedy Central's various social media and YouTube platforms. I will, of course, be pushing these out on my platforms, and um, it's going to be a fun time. I'm really excited to be out there. Again, it's one of my favorite events, and it's been too long. So uh, follow along my misadventures in San Diego from afar, if you so desire. Joshua Horowitz on Twitter and Instagram. Okay. That's all the business at hand. Let's get to the main event. Remember, Vengeance is out in theaters on Friday. I definitely recommend it. Great film from uh, a really talented gentleman in Mr. BJ Novak. And speaking of BJ, here's my conversation with him. And yeah, I sound a little crowded. Sorry. There's no formal introduction, but this, well, one of the characters in BJ Novak's new film says, I do believe every white guy needs a podcast. And I'm Josh Barwitz, and this is my podcast. This is what it is, BJ. I'm sorry. I mean, look, I obviously, my character is much like you. So I, I identify. I identify. <laughs> Sometimes a white guy uh, needs a podcast. Hey, I'm just finding a good fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, congratulations on the film, man. I last saw you on a big, big day for you. There was your big premiere in Tribeca. Mm -hmm. um, and look, you, you're a smart guy. You know what it's like. You never know how it's going to be received. Right. I've been to many a premiere from many an actor making their debut. And you're always like, oh, what's, yeah. what's it going to be? Yep. Um, my sense is you felt pretty damn good that night. That's got to be a moment. I felt good that night. The whole time I was whispering to Mindy Kaling next to me, the, the sound is too loud. The sound is too loud. The sound is too loud. And she was like, will you shut up? It's fine. By the way, it was too low. But... <laughs> That's not the point is the movie. You made them lean in. We were leaning I did in. make them lean in. The movie, the movie worked that night, and that's much bigger than whether the decibel level was 7.8 or Dolby 8, which was my fight. So look, but that's how, I, that's, that's how I think. Yes, thank you. Big picture. It was a good night. Has this been on the list for a while to write and direct your own film? I mean, somehow you've, you've been a best-selling children's, children's offer author rather, and an app developer before you made your own I know. film. I was procrastinating forever <laughs> because this is my dream. This is what I came out here to do. And um, it took me till I was 42 years old and had done every conceivable <laughs> uh, side hustle until I got to, um, really got it together enough. But you know, you, you realize every movie is, is a miracle that it gets made, let alone one that came out how you wanted it to. I, I really had no idea the odds that are against anybody, even someone with so many advantages like I had going into this, the odds against any project 
uh, happening, let alone happening the way you want it to, are like infinitesimal. I say that word carefully and deliberately because I didn't know how to pronounce it. Um, I can spell it but not pronounce it. Well, that, I mean, that does get to sort of like a big, basic, stupid question I have, which is like, how difficult is it for someone like you, for BJ Novak, mm-hmm. with the, the resume you have, to get a movie of this size made with you starring in it? Like, can you contextualize a little bit of like how much of a boulder up a hill it was? Absolutely. Well, it's, um, you know, if you really want to get into the film aspects of it, which I know you do because I know, I know the podcast, um, um, yeah, let me, let me try to break that down. Uh, so I think that probably the most important thing you said was size. Uh, and, I, you know, this is a $5 million movie that became six and then became 6.5 because of COVID. But, um, you know, a movie that size is, um, it, it takes a lot less to get someone to take a long shot bet. It's sort of like, it's a penny stock to somebody like, you know, universal in the big scheme of things. Now, a lot of movies like a lot of movies that are as good or better than this one are two million. You know, um, Sorry to Bother You was something like three. Um, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies was probably, I don't know, less. You know, I, I think that and yet I never know what a movie costs. And I told them that when I signed on, I was like, you, is this people? And people always ask you if you're in my position, you know, uh, what do you think this costs? I don't know what anything costs. What are you talking about? Five million, yeah. 50 million. I don't know. It all looks the same to me. Um, now I get it because I've, I've had to go over budgets and make compromises, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the fact that it's $5 million makes it a real wild card that someone mm-hmm. can choose to take a bet on a $5 million movie if they really believe in it for any number of reasons or any combination of reasons. So I think people, the people that backed it really liked the script. That was one thing. The actors, I'm very good at writing for actors, being an actor and being a verbose person who loves writing a monologue. I love writing a monologue (laughs) to a fault. Actors love monologues. So if you fill it with monologues, the audience might get bored. (laughs) But the actor thinks finally the the scene chewing scene I've been waiting for. Ashton turning to some of the speeches he gets. Yeah, 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 exactly. Come on. Yeah. That's no, so rich. That's, that, so, that's gold. Thank you. So I write a good speech and, um, <laughs> and you know, I, I write a, a decent script when I spend, you know, years and years on it and, um, and have a lot of writing uh, training. So I think a script that some people liked and that attracted good actors and was with a recognizable actor, not a bankable one, I would say, but you know, sure, that's something. And, and so I think, you know, putting a combination of script cast and someone who just personally believed in it and caught Jason Blum in a good mood, um, you know, it's not crazy that this movie yeah. would get made, but it's also, you know, it wouldn't be crazy at all if it never got made. I, I think the fact that it's 5 million is just under the threshold where someone can take a bet if they really like a couple things about it. Right. It, it's funny because, like, in watching the movie, and I didn't know much going in, and I almost would encourage people not to know too much going in, but, like, if you watch the first five minutes of the movie, you're like, oh, this is kind of the movie I would expect B.J. Novak to be directing. This is going to be kind of like a relationship comedy, mm-hmm. urban, you know, and yeah. then, it's, it, then it just, like, totally takes a 180. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious, like, you know, it, take, it kind of takes balls for you, someone like yeah. you, to write exterior West Texas yeah, yeah, as yeah. the first shot. Yep. 
in a script, yep. I would think. Thank you. It, it sure did. Uh. <laughs> because, like, going in, it's not like there's a secret portion of your life I didn't know about where you were, like, living in West Texas for 10 years. Dude, I'll tell you the scariest thing I did was um, writing the title page, Vengeance. I'm like, am I serious? Vengeance, BJ Novak. I'm like, now that is also what gave me the confidence to write it. Because I'm like, you see Vengeance, BJ Novak, you're like... Something ain't right here. Yeah. <laughs> Let me turn the Maybe I will read this, but yeah, yeah, that's that's what gave me the existential, like, what the fuck am I doing was literally a title vengeance, but also it made me think, you know, this there's something funny in an interesting way if I'm writing a movie called Vengeance. So yeah, I think getting out of my comfort zone in that sense was um, was what drew me to it and the challenge of writing Texans in a way that wouldn't get me beat up in Texas. <laughs> um, you know, I think all of these things made me think, oh, this is a dangerous movie. And, um, and so it's the kind of thing I can get obsessed with getting right, which I think is the yeah. draw to deciding what to do. So you, you, you I presume, went there to yeah, kind of like at least, yeah, like to like get a sense of it. Do people like know, like I'm always curious, like, are you like, hi, I'm researching a movie and they're like, you know, you're the guy from the office. What the fuck are you doing in my little town here? Like, what's the vibe? Or are it's you just ex- kind of it's like exactly what existing? you just it's exactly what you just said with a different line reading. It's I wish I could <laughs> quote you exactly, but it's with a sort of uh, uh, happiness, a delight in Texas anyway. Well, and I yeah. thought the opposite. I was like, oh, my God, they're going to see this Jewish East Coast Hollywood guy saying he's making a movie about them and they are going to want to kick my fucking ass. <laughs> Immediately, how do I ever convince them that no, I really want to tell like a fun, interesting, honest family you know story? Um, that it sure it's a comedy, but blah blah blah. Um, so I got like, oh my god, you're the guy from the office. You're here to make a movie. Let me show you everything. Come have dinner at my house. Come to Easter dinner with us. You know, I got. Um, and I do think there it is something very much about Texas and maybe maybe other parts of the South too. But you know, being from Boston. My cousins aren't that friendly to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> like <laughs> it was, um, it, it's a very, So that all very bleeds warm. into the script. Everything Actually, you just described, yep. was that already in the script? Because you just described literally what the nature yes, of that no, I, of how you're taken in by this family. No, I mean, that's, that is why I did the research first. I mean, I, I think I, it was reflected in, in the script after I did that research. And then the actors, really, the rehearsals with the actors and that little space we had, you know, and I, 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 I really am an obsessive uh, perfectionist uh, about things that matter and things that don't. So just going to every possible house, is it? Are they in a trailer? Are they in a double wide? Are they in a, a suburb right. that's faded? Are they at the, in a big house at the end of a dirt road? You know, I, I visited all of these locations and the families, you, you, know, you can also get a sense when you location scout, who lives, who lives in this house for real? And what are they watching on TV? And how are they dressed and how do they treat their kids? I mean, you pick up all sorts of things just um, when you're sort of invisibly prepping a movie. And I could see, I think, the, the house they were in, it was a comfortable house um, with a, a cramped kitchen table. And that right. leads to a certain type of family dynamic. Right. So what is, what is like the germ of the idea that gets you excited for something like this? Is it putting yourself, like someone like you, your mm-hmm. persona essentially in the context of like, you know, film noir, yeah. like, you know, you're, 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 you're Jake Giddis, you're in Chinatown, but yeah. like, what if it were Beach Day? It was everything I hated about myself and everything I wished I were, I, I think, were the poles of this movie. Um, I hate that 
the coolest I feel is, you know, when I can get a, a little glamour from standing next to someone like John Mayer at Soho House. Right. I hate that about myself. Um, <laughs> this is shallow. I'm not as smart as I think. I'm not as cool as I think. When I have one too many drinks and feel like a cool guy, and then I, I see a picture of myself the next day, I hate that person in that photo, you know? And, um, and it had just been after a relationship where I regretted, oh my God, I, I was... I sucked and I didn't pay attention to this person that now is gone and I have all these regrets. So it was really everything I hate about myself, everything I regretted. And I wrote it and, um, well, I'll tell you one, one aspect of that now is that it's a very interesting, it's like the douchebag version of um, the more personal you are, the more universal you are. Um, right. So so many people read the script or saw that movie and I was like, that's, that's me, that's everyone. And I was like, well, I'm not the only guy. I'm not the only person, not just guys. So many girls have, you know, you know, right. um, Jake, you know, club in their phone or, you know, Mike Tinder. Um, it's not just me. It's not just John, you know, it's, and you realize like, oh, okay. Being shallow in these times is something everyone battles with. Everyone relates to some more than others. But so that person became the universal. So it really started with what you know, what I wanted to put myself through the ringer for in a funny way. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? And I was regretting this breakup, so I was especially, that's where a lot of the best writing comes from when you are so vulnerable and open. And then I think the other side was honestly wish fulfillment, um, sort of like a version of, what if I started a movie called Vengeance, you know? Vengeance by BJ Novak, oh yeah, could I do that? And that, that fantasy has to kind of meet somewhere. Well, who are you at your worst and who, who do you wish you could become? And what is the realistic, realistic Venn diagram? And how, how far could you push that? So I think that's why like, it was such yeah. a personal movie and why I was so shocked when they said I could make it, even though for all the reasons I told you, it's not the most insane thing that a guy from the office with a script like that and some actors interested would get it. I still couldn't really believe it, you know? Do you, do you yourself give uh, friends and family unusual nicknames in your phone? Do you have... Or are they literal names? <laughs> um, I sometimes if I'm in front of them, I'll be like Princess Natalie, you know, whatever. If I'm ribbing <laughs> someone, but um, in general, no. But all the time, you know, Mike Contractor, you know, right, uh, sure. stuff like that. Elisa Housekeeper, you know, <laughs> definitely I have stuff like that. Um. I think I mentioned this to you at the party. I appreciated the Terry Gross cameo. She has chosen her roles very carefully over the years. She has not done much outside of The Simpsons, I think. Oh, she was and on The Simpsons? Get, That's funny. Yeah. She, and she, um, she gets the, the juicy line, I love what you're doing with dead white girl. To hear yep. Terry Gross say that. Great, great, great. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah, as an NPR fan myself, like that was my big, that was definitely my big get. Do you give her line readings? Do you just let her do her thing? Like, are you directing her or does she, does she just send that? You know, we recorded, we did a few takes. I think I combined a couple takes. I really liked um, her sort of, quote, off camera when she was just like, great to talk to you or whatever. I I used that because it was just so natural. But it wasn't too much of a stretch for her. Do you, yeah, exactly. Do you, so do you show this film to friends and family? Like, do you like, do you like ask Mindy to look at this for her notes? Do you ask filmmakers you know for her notes? I was terrified to show Mindy. Um, But yes, I mean, I'm, I'm, like clutching my fist in terror when I show it to people, but I also very much believe in showing it to people. And, you know, the earliest, you know, way I, I struck out in the world, um, you know, on my own was doing stand up. And so, and stand up is really a, a brutal lesson in 
learning what works and what doesn't. And so right. I think anyone, and I've noticed Judd Apatow do this too, and he's a former stand-up. He shows, I was in Knocked Up, I had one line in Knocked Up. And they tested that movie a hundred million times. And my line was right. different every screening, because they were just <laughs> seeing what, um, by the way, the line I wish was in was not in, which anyway, I'll tell you another time. But um, I think, you know, a, if, you, if you've done stand-up, you want to test your movie a lot. And it's funny because many filmmakers run from that. And the studio wants right. to test it. The studio didn't even want to test it. And I was like, no, you please, you promised me a screening. And so they put together, it was during COVID, so they had to put together employees from the Universal lot um, who I was warned they're going to be brutal because they're, they're trying to impress their bosses by giving notes. And I was like, all right, I'll take it. I'll take it. And I, you know, I hid behind yeah. a glass wall. It wasn't so bad. You know? Okay. Yeah. How much, how much of this is also about... And like, the notes were helpful, too. Do you, do you find that, like, look, you're presented with interesting opportunities, I'm sure. I'm sure you're up for some interesting roles. But maybe there, there are limits to that in terms of what people envision you as. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you're getting the offers to be, like, the lead in, in a movie called Vengeance. You only can I, write that for yourself. I've got to right? imagine I'm the last person on any list for a movie called Vengeance, which was why it was funny to me. As well as why I would have to write it for myself, sure. But is is that an exciting thing in terms of like, yes, I get to like, sow my oats as a filmmaker in this one too, but I also get to stretch myself as an actor. I know, because no one is presenting this kind of fun opportunity. Oh, absolutely. You know, I wrote the script and, you know, again, I I keep saying I seriously take everything, but I worked with an acting coach on it, you know, and um, I showed it to her and um, she said at first when I read this, for the same reason you did, she said, I kept turning the cover page like, did BJ really write this? Because it wasn't just that I had, you know, written about characters not like myself. It's that I was writing myself so far. She's like, the first few pages, I get it. That's what you do. Right. But then she's like, then I realized why you wrote this. It was to stretch yourself as yeah. an actor. And I thought, well, no, I, I wrote it to stretch myself as a writer. And this is where the character had to go. But you know, she, she, her lens is acting. And so, yeah. and that made me realize, oh, you have a real, you have a real job here as an actor to stretch. And that was, I like acting, so that was cool too. And, um, and I definitely think I'm better. I definitely had to be, you know. What, what do you, is there like a general way to say like what kind of stuff you're offered in terms of acting roles or what comes your way? What do, do people still pigeonhole you yeah. in a certain kind of thing? Well, you know, they, Everybody's a writer, which I, I get it. I look like a writer. I feel like a writer. But um, uh, yeah, no, generally it's like a writer who this, a writer who that. <laughs> I'm like, like I can play nice. stupid. I can be an idiot. Um, I'm an idiot already and not, but in, in the thinks he's smart type of way, I'm sure. Maybe I'll get that after vengeance. <laughs> um, let's go back if you'll indulge me a little bit. So um, growing up, who, who is who's kid BJ? Like, what, like a 10, 12 year old, like what are the aspirations? Well, first of all, what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, his name was Ben, which I changed to BJ when I was like fifth grade, which has huge pros and cons, my friend. Um, well, okay, let's open up that can yeah, of worms for a second. Yeah. Because, the, I mean, come on. Like, yeah. who does that to themselves? Like, I didn't know what I was walking into, first of all. And um, I didn't know what I was walking into. But you know what? I thought it, it sounded famous and I wasn't wrong, Josh. <laughs> no, but for real, I was like, I'm exaggerating somewhat. But um. There were four kids named Ben in my class, Ben M, Ben N, Ben K, and Ben C. And I was like, my name is really Ben fucking N. I'm sure I didn't talk like that then, but that's how I thought in my head. 
And um, there was a kid on Nickelodeon named BJ, and I was like, that's cool. I was like, I, and my middle name was Joseph, so I was like, yeah, BJ Novak. And my parents were like, I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> they looked at each other. And like, you know what? Now yeah. it's my fucking name. You know what? Now I like it, but like some people call me that. Some people call me Ben. Um, yeah. But um, no, now I like it. You know, it just it is. Um, but it, it's also the nice, it's there nice were probably that, bad years in there. I'm sure, but you got through it. I got through it. <laughs> See, now <laughs> if I change it back, I'd be like, "Oh, you think you're so smart now, Benjamin?" Um, <laughs> but um, I do think that. Uh, what was I going to say? Um, I forget. But no, I mean, it's my, it, I, I don't know, I, I do, I, it's nice to have a different name on your Starbucks cup. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, it right. helps you stay on do you, Okay, so, so what were you into, what were you passionate about as a kid? Like 10, 12, 15, what are, what are your obsessions? Um, I, honestly, I've been the same kid since like um, sixth, seventh grade, honestly. Um, I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be funny. I wanted to play pranks. Um, I wanted, I had this deadpan sense of humor. Uh, I wasn't a popular kid, but I wasn't a loser. I was just some kid in the middle who was a little, there was a rumor that he was a little bit funny maybe. Like, I don't know, you know, but I wasn't, I, I really do think I, I was a version of who I am now the whole time. I was probably more interested in the Red Sox at that point. I still like them, but I was very into it. But it's pretty, the evolution has been subtle. I relate very much. I was diehard Yankees, and I yeah. feel like I can barely, I can name like five Yankees now. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what I've become. <laughs> like, I, what happened? Yeah, exactly. I'm so ashamed because now I can get Red Sox tickets. And I'm like, story, <laughs> got it. I know him. <laughs> Evaldi, sure. Um, Poser. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I know. But now I get the tickets, and I used to be able to name the whole lineup. Um, yeah. But you talk about, Feeling like you're kind of in the middle of whatever. But like, look, going to Harvard, being on the Lampoon, like, this is lofty. This is, like, pedigree. This is, like, where, like, great yeah, comic yeah, but writers and... Do you feel... But did you feel that world, like, one of the good ones? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm set. Like, I'm on, the, I'm on the upper tier. We're all going to make it. Like, what were you... Where was your attitude, your confidence level in the college years coming out of college? It was... Um, everything was, like... And it's still probably reflected in how I was describing Vengeance you know, writing that title page and then thinking that would be awesome. And then it's like, wait, am I, I'm out of my mind. I'm never going to get away with this, you know? And then someone says, let's make it. And I, you know, and I, I freak out. I think that it is this sort of huge confident swing that doesn't quite feel real. And then it is. Right. And I adjust. So I think, you know, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to get into Harvard and I'm going to write for the Lampoon and then I'm going to blah, 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 blah. And then, like, out of, you know, I, I won't quite say a miracle, but, like, my parents were surprised that, <laughs> that I got in. Like, I was not an A student quite. I was bright, but yeah. I was a B plus, A minus, you know, whatever. I, but I went for it and I did it. And now here I am and I think, okay, all right, like, here's your shot and I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And, um, and I forget your exact question, but I, it's not like I ever felt comfortable it always felt okay if i have this yeah. what what would be the coolest most rebellious thing to do now that i'm sort of in the inner sanctum you know and and what and what was the ultimate so get, getting out of school as i understand it stand up is kind of the first thing you kind of pursue is the is the goal then like i'm gonna be the world's greatest stand-up i'm gonna 
do oh, a, yeah. get a sitcom. I'm going to like the whole, do that Dude, ride. Or what's when I the... developed an app, I was going to be the world's greatest app developer. I was going to be Zuckerberg. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Like whatever. When I started doing stand-up, I was going to be, you know, the greatest stand-up. I still do like stand-up a lot and would like to, um, I would like to have something new to do, to say, but um, I don't have that right now. But I, I don't just want to go up to kind of wing it with the old stuff, but... Um, right. But I love stand-up. So you and Eddie Murphy, we're waiting for the return for both of you. Yeah, well, it'll be a double bill. We're co-headliners right. for sure. <laughs> so the first thing I want to talk about in the career that I'm fascinated by, because I, too, love pranks and love prank shows. Yeah. Punked. Punked was awesome. Punked I thought was Punked great. was awesome. Yeah, my Come mom on. doesn't agree, but I do. I loved it. <laughs> so... so what, what are your memories? Is, well, what sticks out? Did, did all the stuff you do make it to air? Were there horrible incidents that didn't make it? Um, was it stressful? It got, it's got to be like, that's, you know, it's one take it you was, have. Like, exactly. It was the most, first of all, I was plucked out of, um, you know, I had been a Raising Dad writer, which is Saget's um, sitcom on the CW. Right. I think it was, it was called the WB. And, um, you know, and then I was, that, then I was a former Raising Dad writer, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden, like Ashton Kutcher, you know, puts me on Punked. I was a stand-up then, and they're always, uh, who, right. who are the stand-ups around town? And I had developed a reputation. I got to audition, and I did a great um, improvised, improvised audition, and I got the part, you know, right after Dak Shepard. All these people keep coming back in my life they're like from it's like talking about like the cool kids from high school to me now um it's like Dax and I, I mean yeah, I still know them now in different contexts but um but so all the the most overwhelming thing was simply that I was suddenly on television my first time on camera um it was MTV which was the coolest possible thing at the time it was um my scene partners, if you think, if you break it down, it's a crazy first job. My scene partners <laughs> were the most famous people in the world who did, yeah, not, know, who did not know that they were in a scene. And you have one take. And if you break the reality, uh, you have wasted $500,000 of some of Ashton Kutcher's money. And if you are boring, uh, you'll be fired, presumably. So like it was, it, and you know, I was 24, so I was like, bring it on. You know, it was, um, right. I was ready for it and it was thrilling, but I love pranks. So I think that love, you know, I thought every, I thought these were the funniest ideas I'd ever heard. You know? It must have been such a high to be in the middle of some of these moments, like to be on that higher water at, like, yes. like just be. Yes, but it was terrifying as well. Um, <laughs> I was like, I mean, I still have. I would wake up in the middle of the night with like what I should have said, you know, like we did a prank on Jamie Presley, the actress, which was such a funny setup. And um, like the next night I woke up and I was like, I should have told her she's only successful because <laughs> of her dad, <laughs> meaning Elvis. And um, I would, and I, by the way, that would have been funny. It's okay. You know, no. you, you don't always think of it in the moment, but I would, you know, so that was stressful after the fact. And then one time um, I was, doing Tommy Lee, I had to pretend to be a paparazzi photographer who was getting Tommy Lee hitting a guy in his Hummer. A guy, a stuntman jumped in front of the Humvee. And, um, and then I was a photographer laying in wait as like part of a scam and trying to shake him down for the photos. And Tommy Lee 
was and is an intimidating guy. He's had some assault uh, allegations. And um, the rumor was that he was not in a good mood that day, or let's say a sober-minded. <laughs> you heard that going in, you're like, just so you know. Yeah, he was not in a sober-minded This unstable sober-minded man sitting. is feeling yes, more unstable than Yes, and you are going to jump out at him and shake him down for money um, at the risk of destroying his reputation. And, uh, and I had brought my ID with me because I had to drive to set. So I just had my driver's license in my pocket. And after the prank, I took the license out of my pocket and it had been crumpled uh, beyond recognition because I was so nervous. I was just crumpling this driver, driver's license. It's not like a business card. And I had to get a new license. So I was definitely you know, terrified, but keeping right. it cool on camera. So um, the show The Office that you will be talking about till the day you die, for good or for bad, for is good. just a remarkable unicorn. Yeah. Obviously, this is the kind of thing actors would, would kill to have. I'm curious, like you've talked before, and all the actors have talked about, and for those that are too young to remember, the context of this is this didn't seem like a no-brainer no. at the time. This no. actually seemed like a really like dangerous, Absolutely. kind of shitty idea. It, it was a, a rip, suicide like a rip-off of like the greatest show, one of the greatest sitcoms ever. Not only that, so, it was the yeah. ripoff of one of the greatest sitcoms ever that also was the least likely thing to be popular in America anyway. Right. You know, so like both the critics that we wanted to impress or the comedy elites um, that we wanted to impress hated it. Um, and people who liked Friends would be like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) So like it was, it definitely felt like a suicide mission. Um, But, um, well, anyway, I'm jumping ahead. Well, no, but I I guess my question is, when did it go from like, this is a bad idea to, you know what? I think this is going to work out. This is actually. Well, look, the reason, the reason I took the job and other people took the job was that Greg Daniel, first of all, I always felt like, so many TV shows are imitating bad TV shows, right? At least yeah. we're imitating the best TV show. You know, right. that's, that's already something. We aspire to be like a great show. Most shows aspire to be mediocre. The show aspired to be great. That was something right there, I thought. Um, another is that Greg Daniels was brilliant and humble and knew what we were up against and was going to go for it. And that was... You know, he was a legend already and, you know, he had created King of the Hill. He had been, his only credits as he once um, made me realize, not forced me to realize, as I once realized, his only credits were all shows that are still on the air. King of the Hill, The Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, The Office, Parks and Recreation. Um, Those shows don't go away. And and so we knew who Greg was and he he was scared. And that was um, a good sign that he was scared. And right. so we wanted to work with him. And then Paul Lieberstein said in season one, we all know this is getting canceled. Let's just make a show that's so funny that other comedy writers will hire us um, after they see it for the next show. That's, that's liberating. Yeah, just like, was, let's do yeah. what we think is really funny to us. Yeah, and, and also I was like, oh, it. here's a grown-up who's not scared of being canceled. Okay, let's relax and, be, yeah. and take some risks. And I think with that pressure off... You know, ironically, it's always the lesson you learn, right? That, you know, the more personal, the more universal. So when we really were our our personal selves, I remember my script, Diversity Day, um, Steve Carell's. I mean, we all write them collectively. I had my script because I was the point person on it. So, you know, um, Steve Carell's making a video 
about diversity. And Paul Lieberstein pitched that Michael says, if you, Abraham Lincoln once said, if you are a racist, I will attack you with the North. <laughs> I couldn't believe that such a brilliant, crazy line had come out of a person's mouth. And I, it was so weird. It was so inspired. And I thought, I'm just going to put this in the script. And I thought, it's hard to tell the difference between a room bit, quote unquote, and right. a real pitch. And right. I don't know if that was a room bit or a real pitch, but I was like, this is the kind of show where we put room bits in. And Paul was really the compass I felt for, um, for the, the soul of the office in season one. And, uh, and so, you know, I put Paul's joke in there and yeah. it made the cut and some fans quoted it. And I thought, wow, you know, it might work. I don't think we would have put that in if we were scared of being canceled. Right. Um, and well, yet it's uh, that, kind, that kind of joke, obviously, is what eventually set the show apart. Well, and you talk about making, you know, using the personal in this basis, and you, you well know, and you and Mindy are very sweet about kind of being open to a degree about your own relationship and mining it right, right. on the show. I mean, I guess in, in the moment, when you think back to those times, was that, were you guys talking about like how much we should use of what's going on on the show? Like, do you, or is it just sort of like- No, all the, other, all the other writers were like, just looking at us, like smiling while we were fighting. <laughs> And they would be like, we should put this on the show. And uh, I didn't really believe them, but you know, we weren't, <laughs> who were we to turn down screen time at that point? So they're like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Let's use our up and yeah, down relationship if, if we can for finally, our career. Yeah. yeah, if we can finally have a subplot, sure. And, um, <laughs> but we didn't get it. We just thought we were, we were thinking, no, the other person is wrong. Like, listen to this argument, I'm right. And, um, and the other writer saw it as like, these two are just so fiercely in love and yeah. such fierce um, enemies at the same time. Have you, in the subsequent years, have, have you had your like Bill Shatner get a life moment where it's sort of like, I need a break. I, I need a day, I need a week where someone doesn't mention the office to me because it would be understandable. It would, I would get it, anyone would get it. Or how have you rationalized it's omnipresence in your life every single day you're out in the world. Um, well, I, I rationalize it in terms of respecting it because yeah. there was, we were writing the episode The Fire, season two, which has a now somewhat famous song, Ryan Started the Fire. And when that went in the script, Mike Schur said, with a laugh, people are gonna be singing Ryan started the fire to you for the rest of your life. And we all laughed because our show was so small and it was so gonna be canceled. It was amazing we even got those extra six episodes. Um, and the idea that, and it was such a weird joke. Ryan started the fire because he burned a cheesy pita and it's a parody of Billy Joel's. It was so random and we all laughed and prophetic words for the, not a week has gone by uh, <laughs> probably not a day has gone by if I'm out in public where someone doesn't sing Ryan started the fire at me and it would be annoying if I, I wasn't so conscious that when Mike said that it was the most preposterous prediction and it was really a oh yeah 
Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> so when they're <laughs> that quoting this, you, would be such a hit. Smiling. Yeah, <laughs> you're, they don't. The fan doesn't realize why you're smiling when you're reacting in that way. You're thinking back to Mike saying that at the moment, being like, "That's why. <laughs> that's why I'm, I'm never too cool for it." And if if someone yeah. offered me a button to make it stop, I would not press that button because I remember how right. special that idea was. You know that yeah. that that would happen. Um, okay, so time is flying by. I do want to get to some other stuff, including your comfort movie pick, which segues out of what I'm going to bring up, which is an amazing opportunity. You're in one of, I mean, all Tarantino's movies are amazing, but Inglor- I have a soft spot for Inglorious Bastards. Um, talk to me just about, did that come out of nowhere? Did you have any relationship with Quentin? No. Had you hung with him at Soho House? Like, is it that no, a random no. phone call? I got, I got an audition, and I auditioned, and then I got a call back, and... Maybe a second callback, maybe not. Um, but um, no, it was just like the traditional thing. And I mean, the stakes, you know, it's probably the same as Tommy Lee. I was like, you know, trying to keep my cool, but you know, it was, it was wild. And it must've been wild when you not only land it, but then you read the script and you're like, oh, I'm in it till the end. I'm like, I'm not the guy that's like dispatched right. in the second scene. Right. Like, well, way to spoil it, Josh. Um, <laughs> Ten year, twelve years yeah. later. Sorry. Yeah. You spoiled that you famous think... gif. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Pitt has facial blindness. Do you think he'd recognize you if you come up to him? He has. He, he has it? recognized me um, okay. in random contexts um, since we started filming. So I. Okay. Good. Cool. I don't know if I'm special or if he's uh, underestimating himself, but I, I have found him to be very, very attentive uh, to the people he's worked with. So shockingly, in this comfort movie discussion I've been having the last few years on the podcast, nobody has selected a Tarantino movie. And I mean, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't pick Death Proof hmm. as a comfort oh, movie. Oh, Death Proof I, is up there for me. Really? Absolutely. I mean, I love, I, it's a great movie, but... Other than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, if, really? So I feel like there's different types of favorite yes. books and favorite movies. There's the Desert Island... The, and actually, this was in the episode The Fire, too. The, there's the Desert Island, quote-unquote meaning the one that you believe is most representative of your soul or has meant the most to you or you think you should if you were forced to read a book or watch a movie on a desert island, that's the one you choose because it's best for your health. And then there's, and I think we all learned in the pandemic, there's the one that when the world is ending and no one's watching, what do you actually watch, right? Or what do you actually read? And for me, I don't think Death Proof is as good as some of his other movies, but it is the one that I watch again and again. And I'm surprised no one picked a Tarantino movie because music is so key. Like I just saw Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. And while Mm. I think there are plenty of, you know, weaknesses in my opinion, I loved it. And I would watch it again and again and again. And I think it's because it's so musical. And Tarantino's soundtracks are so musical that it feels like the kind of thing. And that Grindhouse soundtrack that's my favorite of his soundtracks, which is saying a lot because he's amazing. It is saying a lot. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a very recent pick, 2019. Yeah. I don't need to tell the folks what it's about, but it's kind of like the ultimate. I actually don't generally love the quote unquote hangout movie, mm-hmm. but this is kind of like his hangout movie in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it? talk to me a little bit about why this one conjures up comfort for you. Is it, is it hanging with each of the characters? Is it the music? Is it the surprises? What what is it that strikes you? I think you? it's a it's a very immersive world. I think the yeah. the color scheme, the music, the cars, the details, the look of uh, Leo's trailer, it it conjures a world 
that I don't know. You know, the amazing thing about that soundtrack is it's from 1969, and I think I knew one of 30 songs. 1969 is probably the most known year in the history of music. To choose right. all songs, now I didn't grow up then, but still, like I know 1969, baby. <laughs> I saw Forrest Gump. <laughs> no, but, um, exactly. but like it's nothing obvious. And so it, there's one thing about that world, but I also think that Leo's character really breaks my heart. I love him, he's so funny. And he's so overlooked because Brad Pitt has the more subtle role and is mind blowing with the dimension he brings to that subtlety. So absolutely deserves all the praise. But people sleep on that lead performance from Leo, which if you think about it, this is a washed up, stuttering, emotional, blubbering, (laughs) narcissist. There are so many character traits that are not leading man traits, but because he's Leo, we think, oh, he's just Leo being Leo. Not at all, look carefully. This guy is dancing backwards on the ceiling and we're not even noticing. That's how good he is. He is so funny. And the, um, the, you know, the scene where he's like, he's like crying about his career and then he sees Roman Polanski and he's like, I'm making it. I live near Roman Polanski. Like that up and down, I relate to so much in Hollywood where a random cue, five seconds after the last one, makes you feel like you're the king of the world and then you're, you know, what have you done with your life and career? It changes every five seconds based on nothing. And that's so stupid. And yet (laughs) I do it. And here's this guy doing it. And Brad yeah. Pitt's so loving, and it's also if you work in Hollywood, it's um, it's an above the line below, uh, an above the line below the line romance like I've never seen. And these are the two strata of Hollywood that make it go. Hollywood is a combination of theater, radio, and carnies. This is my theory. <laughs> if you look at the history of it, which is interesting to me, these are different groups that had to combine to make Hollywood. And there's a carny side to Hollywood. And, um, and they are transient people who might be artistically gifted, might be crooks, um, might be solid-hearted people, might live with their dog in a trailer in Panorama City. And, um, and they do stuff that is not even on the radar. You know, a friend of mine said, um, if you wanna know if someone's a celebrity, ask them to fill out a form. You know, like I went to a doctor's office and they gave me a form and I'm like, someone didn't fill this out. Like so many things in Hollywood just handed to you if you're on the call sheet, you know, and right. you can become the worst out of touch person. And then there's a whole, the whole industry, the backbone of the industry is like manual labor. And these people are five steps, five inches from each other yeah. and completely different planets and, and yet very tied. And, and it's, this movie, you know, if Vengeance is Red State, Blue State, this is like the two classes of Hollywood that is like the secret, um, you know, one of many terrible secrets of social dynamics in Los Angeles and Hollywood. But, you know, it is sort of this hiding in plain sight right. dynamic. And, and it, and, and by the way, loves all of it. He loves every loves All of it. Yeah, <laughs> all of it. And, um, and Brad Pitt sort of knows the score. And he's very Christ-like. He knows the score and chooses to love. 
Leo's character doesn't know the score, which makes me feel sad for him because he doesn't get to, it just, I saw the movie five times in the theater, twice yeah. more on video. I just, and, and it's the music and it's the camera movement and that scene where you know, he's fighting Bruce Lee and the camera doesn't cut for like seven minutes. How do you choreograph this? Um, anyway, yeah, I just, um, and then the, the LSD cigarette and, you know, Austin Butler is great. I don't know. It's just, oh yeah, the, yeah. The, the whole ranch sequence is amazing on its own. Yeah. Um, last thing for you, this is totally random. How close did you come to getting Jack Nicholson in, in your show? You wrote a script for Jack. Did you come, did you have a meeting? Did you get anywhere with Jack? No, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I respect the try, I respect the swing. Yeah. Uh, the premise you wrote, you wrote one of your scripts with him in mind. I guess it wasn't one that you actually shot though, is that right? Correct, yeah. It's called Fat Man on a Chair and I'll Do It Someday. Um, but um, I, look, one of the producers thought Jack would be right for it and knew Jack. And it just, it still feels like, wait, was that bullshit? Like, what are you talking about? Like, nobody knows Jack. <laughs> one day. Yeah. Never know. Yeah. Um, congratulations, man. Oh, you know, thank I'm you. Of this one. And I, honestly, it's a great I feel like I made it just talking to you. So thank you. Oh, please stop it. Um, Vengeance is the film, the start of a new aspect. He's, he, yes, he's a children's author. Yes, he's an app developer. Yes, he's an actor. But now he's officially <laughs> Some a of writer. those things I, mean, I wouldn't say I am, more things I did. Um, <laughs> no, but, but congrats, man. I can only imagine. Much. As a fan of, of movies, like I'm sure to see the written and directed Thank you. title card must be like a moment. So uh, en enjoy the moment and people should check it out, man. And thank you for doing what you do. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>